before we go into thinking about, okay, how do we manage the pay review process, how we design a bonus, is thinking about why do we want to do this? So why do we want pay transparency? Why do we want to manage pay? So start off by running a workshop with your leadership team and then really thinking about where do we want to be as an organization in the next three to five years and using that destination of where we want to be to help build a pay philosophy. Welcome to the HR L&D podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment, specialist HR recruiters. Tuning into the HR L&D podcast will help you to discover strategic growth concepts, leadership development strategies, and the values and behaviors that drive organizational change and success. Together, let's empower our workforces, diversify our thinking and achieve significant HR success. Hello and welcome back to the HR L&D podcast. My name is Nick Day, CEO and founder of JGA Recruitment Group, and we're a specialist HR recruiter. Now, of course, if you are familiar with this show, please do remember to share it with all of your HR colleagues. Do review it if you can, because it's you and me together that we can really build and raise the profile of HR around the globe. And today I'm really excited to welcome Ramiz Kaleem, founder and director of 3R Strategy and author of the best-selling book, A Case of the Mondays. We're going to find all about that book during the course of the show. But to bring Ramiz to life, he has worked in the world for 20 years, both in-house and as a consultant, and he possesses a wealth of experience in job architecture design, bonus and sales incentives, pay structures, equal pay, and most importantly, on this topic of today's conversation, pay transparency in the workplace. Now, in 2015, he founded 3R Strategy to help more organizations build a culture of trust through pay transparency. And that's a topic which is an increasing conversation, not just in HR circles, but in payroll circles as well. For example, California has just written pay transparency into law. And we know that the cost of living crisis is encouraging more open discussion about pay, pay rises, and of course, what peers earn. Now, as the founder of the reward consultancy firm 3R Strategy, Ramiz spends his time now supporting organizations with pay rewards, transparency, job evaluation and architecture, pay structure design, and equal pay. And if you are keen to find out more about what pay transparency is and isn't, and how we can build a workplace culture of trust, then you're in the right place. We're going to be discussing all of these issues today on the show. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome Ramiz Kaleem to the show. How are you feeling today, Ramiz? Hi, Nick. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Me too. I think it's a hot topic of conversation. Before we delve into the world of pay transparency, I'm going to start with a question I ask all of my guests, which is this. What do the words human resources mean to you? Yeah, that's an interesting question because it's not really something you think about. I haven't really thought about it. I think like a lot of people, I I sort of fell into human resources. I think you just associated everything to do with people when you hear the term human resources. But I think it's quite an archaic term. And like a lot of terms that we sometimes use in HR, performance management is another term that I don't really like. So I think, okay. um, yes, you, you do think it's everything to do with people, but I think language we use is important and maybe it's about time we start to use a word that doesn't refer to people as resources. Nice. I quite like that response. We've moved, of course, on from the world of personnel management. We've gone into the world of HR and perhaps the future of work now. I think we're seeing a lot of titles coming into the world of people, business partner. Maybe that more accurately reflects uh, the new industry we're working into. And maybe we'll explore that a little bit later on in the show. But interesting, we're talking about terms and language and, and whether we need to update language that we're using in the workplace. Often, I would say the word or the term pay transparency is is 
very, very often misunderstood, right? It's not just simply the act of publishing salaries, or is it? I know that from your website and the research I've done here, I would say its importance runs much deeper. So I wonder if you could tell me a little bit more about how you understand the term and uh, bring, uh, bring our audience up to speed. Yeah, so I, I think it is a misunderstood term or, or a simplified term because publishing salaries is around pay disclosure and pay transparency is a much broader term. And I think when we discuss pay transparency in these binary terms of you know publishing salaries or not saying anything, it really devalues the wide-ranging benefits that we get from pay transparency. It's like anything, transparency is around giving people context. And when it comes to pay transparency, the most important thing is giving people context around how and why we make pay decisions. So it's, you know, what is our pay philosophy? What is the purpose of pay? Why should pay progress in our organization? Are we looking to benchmark against the external market? What is our external market? Are we market median pairs? Are we leading the market? What do we think about internal equity? And all of these things make up our pay philosophy. And once we have our philosophy, it's around putting together policies and processes that make sure that we manage pay in a fair and an equitable way. And all of this is built in the context around pay transparency. And I think once you get the context right and you have the definitions and the evidence, only then you can be in a position where you think, okay, I do want to publish salaries. But when you speak to people, most people are not that interested with what everyone else gets paid. What they are interested in is making sure that they're being treated fairly. And I think that's really what we can demonstrate through pay transparency is giving people the context and making sure that the the process is fair and equitable. And it, it is a complex process. I think you've certainly brought that to life. As you say, it's not as simple as just publishing what salaries are. There's a lot more that goes into the philosophy of pay, as you mentioned. And you do talk about this in your new book, which is called A Case of the Mondays. It's uh, it's on Amazon. There will be a link in the show notes for those to access the book straight away if you're interested in finding out more. But in that book, you know, because of the complexity, you do actually provide a roadmap for how Pay transparency can help build trust in the workplace. I wonder if you can tell me a little bit more about this. Of course, tell me a little bit more about the book as well. Let our listeners know what they can find in there. But it sounds like a roadmap is something that that could really be useful for HR HR individuals out there that perhaps don't know where to start with with, with what is such a big subject. Yeah. In terms of the book, when I was first getting into reward, there wasn't a lot of training or guidance or books out there that I... So I I thought about doing my CIPD or thought about doing my master's, but it was very generalist and there was very little reward covered in all of this. And so, you know, now that I've been in reward for a while, what I really wanted to write was something that is more accessible. And I tried to make it lighthearted with some film references, but it was all around having something easy to understand around how we can build more pay transparency in our organization. So that's what the roadmap is, is, you know, understanding the wide ranging benefits and how we can go on that journey to pay transparency because it's not something that we can do overnight. So that was the the reason. And and I think building trust is something that has always interested me. So the two people I think that I would recommend in in this area is one is Simon Sinek, who talks a lot about building trust in organization. And he spent a lot of time with the armed forces, for example, or the Marines in the US, because, you know, he talks about how they're working in an environment where your life depends on your colleagues. And so how do you build that level of trust in an organization? And then the other person who talks a lot about this is uh, Brené Brown. And she's done a lot of research around this and she uses the acronym of braving. It's around setting boundaries, reliability. So doing what you say you're going to do, accountability, 
and the V is for vault. So it's about confidentiality. And if somebody tells you something, it stays in the vault. Uh, integrity, which is around choosing courage over comfort, being non-judgmental, being able to ask people for help without being judged and, and knowing that you can have that in the workplace. And and the G is for generosity. So we know that people make mistakes in the workplace and it's recognizing that and, and being generous when we see that happen. So I think those two people really influenced me in terms of, you know, how important it is building trust. And I thought, why not use pay as something that is really the deciding factor for most people when they accept a job offer, right? What am I going to get paid for this? And if we can't get this simple thing right, then we're already starting off in a bad place. So using pay as a way to demonstrate to employees, to colleagues that you know, we want to create an environment where we want to treat people fairly and equitably. So that was really the thinking behind using pay as a way to build trust in the workplace. I wanted to sort of break it down into a really a simple process and a roadmap, which more generalist HR people can can take that away and do it in their organization. Excellent. So, so what would you say would be the best place to start with this? Perhaps I'm an HR director listening to the show and I'm going, you know what, this is something we're keen to do. It is a big subject. Uh, it's a sensitive area when we talk about pay, um, thinking about the vault you've mentioned there, confidential data involved. So what's the best starting point for a business that wants to implement a, a, a pay transparency protocol and don't know where to start? So this is, again, where I would mention Simon Sinek, and I'm a big fan of his concept of starting with why. And so I would say, before we go into thinking about, okay, how do we manage the pay review process, how we design a bonus, is thinking about why do we want to do this? So why do we want pay transparency? Why do we want to manage pay? So start off by running a workshop with your leadership team and then really thinking about where do we want to be as an organization in the next three to five years and using that destination of where we want to be to help build a pay philosophy. So it's thinking about very specific questions like, you know, what do we currently communicate to our employees around pay? And if we want to be transparent, what would we like to communicate to employees in the next three years? Why should pay progress? Do we want pay to progress because of performance or do we want to give everyone the same? Do we want to treat roles in different ways based on their specialism? So the first thing really is to start with why, come up with your pay philosophy uh, and your positioning and as part of when you have that pay philosophy, the next step really is getting the data that's going to help you implement some of that pay philosophy. So that's the first step. And then once you have your why, then then it's doing some market research to say, okay, where do we get our data from to implement okay. this? I know that you um you often at 3R um, strategy, you work often um, in partnership with the existing HR teams, right? So um you work as an extension of the HR teams to help organizations build the trust and, and work through pay transparency projects. Just focusing on that why that you mentioned there, what are some of the reasons or, um, that clients perhaps would engage with yourselves? What are some of the projects perhaps you've been involved in? I wonder if you could um, perhaps bring some of those to light so that people get a bit of an understanding of what those whys might be. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say the most common reason that organizations engage with us is that they want to be transparent with their employees. It's about fairness and equity. If organizations want to be transparent, then you have to make sure that you have processes and policies in place that make sure that you're managing pay for your employees equitably and fairly. So they engage with us to help build in their pay philosophy. So where the workshop that I mentioned with your leadership team, that's what we start off with and build a set of principles and almost like a proposition. So 
you know, if you come and work for this organization, what is the proposition that we give to our colleagues? What do you get? These are the principles. And then from there is building out policies in the process. So we work with, you know, it's really interesting. We can work with a startup that has five to six employees and they're thinking, okay, we expect to grow. And so we want to start looking at this now. Sure. All the way up to a FTSE 100 organization where we're doing a an equal pay audit for them. So they've got thousands of employees. It's making sure that in that equal pay audit, we could be looking to make sure that there is no equal pay risk for men and women doing similar jobs. So I think the key reason is you realize that companies want to be fair and they want to be consistent and equitable. But most organizations are very nervous about transparency. And I think sure. partly it's because they they associate transparency with everyone knowing what everyone else gets paid. So we often work with them saying, okay, you know, let's take a step back. Think about sharing the context with employees first. That's what most employees are looking for. And, and that's really the journey that we take them on is because you were asking about different organizations. So an example is we're working with HarperCollins, for example. And, you know, they're um, a large organization and they want to make sure that the way they manage pay is fair and equitable. So it's really working with organizations like that. And we work with several charities as well. And I think, you know, when you work with charities, they can't always pay the salaries that people might be getting in other sectors. Sure. But for them, it's critical that they're treating people fairly. And as you say, I guess certainly for the large organizations could be a really uh, precise way of identifying pay discrimination in the workplace by doing an equal pay audit. Uh, I guess that gives a complete picture of a of equal pay status. And I can understand why that might be quite a daunting task for those clients. Because of the, it is daunting, I mean, I guess that the, the best recommendation for an HR professional to approach that kind of task, would, would that be to outsource to a specialist like yourselves? Or, or is, is there an earlier starting point than that? There are two things. One is the gender pay gap reporting, yep. which is compulsory for organisations with over 250 employees. And that is the reporting of these six numbers. And gender pay gap reporting looks at the average salaries of male employees versus average salaries of female employees. And you can have a gender pay gap of 20%, for example. And you publish that number. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you're paying men 20% more than women for doing the same job. Because the vast majority of gender pay gap actually exists due to the lack of representation of women in senior roles, because sure. if a CEO is getting paid 50 times more than a graduate, and 90% of the CEOs are male, that really pushes up the average. Sure. And so the equal pay audit is making sure that if you do have a gender pay gap, that none of that gap is because you are discriminating against particular uh, employees and giving them lower pay compared to somebody else doing the same job. The UK legal language isn't straightforward. And so if you look at equal pay in the Equality Act, it's not easy to understand. So they talk about three different types of roles, so work that is like work, work of equal value and work rated as equivalent. And so that analysis you have to do for different types of roles based on whether they might have the same job title or uh, similar responsibilities or they're evaluated the same through a job evaluation process. So it's quite a complicated piece of analysis and it's not compulsory to do sure. equal pay audit but if you're going to publish a gender pay gap of 20 percent again context is important so it's Absolutely. important to publish the context around it to say actually we have no equal pay risk 
but this is why the gender pay gap exists and we're doing something about it. Yeah, you've articulated that very well. And that, that, that certainly crystallised in my mind as to why it could be important. And actually, you made a really good point as to why some of those, um, uh, it may be far, far reaching. But as you say, that it highlights other problems. We need to get more females into senior leadership positions, as you mentioned, which will obviously help to offset that a little bit as we go forward. How has paid benchmarking then been impacted by what I would say the new world of work, the world of remote working we're now finding ourselves in? Has that had an impact on the, on the world of pay transparency and pay benchmarking? I think we've definitely seen an increase in demand for benchmarking with the new world of work and following the pandemic. With more people working remotely, even with hybrid working, we're seeing an increasing number of organizations. And what we would recommend as well is benchmarking nationally rather than locally. Okay. So if, if you are looking to recruit and actually somebody could be based anywhere in the UK, then you start the benchmark using national data rather than uh, a location specific, unless, for example, you have a call center in a particular location, you need people to come in every day and you're lo- recruiting from the local market. Or the exception can be London. If you have a London-based office and you require people to come into London, we see a significant difference between rates of pay for London and the rest of the UK. But for most other locations, we have seen a move, a shift towards national data and benchmarking. But I think the important thing when it comes to this is consistency, because at the start of the pandemic, we were speaking to some organizations that were saying, oh, people are not no longer commuting into work. They're not paying for their lunches. Sure. And we reduce their salaries. And, you know, that goes back to your pay philosophy and the fact that What we pay people has nothing to do with their living situation. In the past, we never used to ask people if they were commuting into work or walking into work. We just paid everyone the same salary. Yeah. And so I think these factors shouldn't influence individual situations. We should have a philosophy to say we're going to benchmark nationally or we're going to benchmark against the lower quartile or the median and then make sure that that applies to everyone. That makes sense. So do you, you would you say then for companies that are looking to recruit, uh, whether it's remotely or, or locally or whatever their setup is, would you recommend that they publish salary bands? So a lot of jobs these days that I see out there, what we do as an agency here as a recruiter, we always always try and publish salaries with a job description, but uh, a lot of people don't. But would you recommend you know, under the, the recommendation of transparency that salary banding should be advertised when we're trying to recruit talent? Yeah, I, I think publishing salary bands is is the minimum that we should be doing. You know, and the fact is, all organizations will have a salary range. Nobody goes out to recruit without setting a budget for a particular role. They'll have a budget. They'll sit with the finance team saying, we have 10 vacancies. This is what we're budgeting. So the fact that they're not publishing a salary range is not because they don't have a salary range. They're choosing not to do it. And, you know, you mentioned California earlier with that law. There are a number of states, I think roughly 20 states in the US where you have to publish the salary range if you're advertising a job. And actually, as a recruiter, we're not allowed to ask them what their current salary is either, which may well come into the UK in the future, who knows? Which is an interesting, for those not familiar, as a recruitment company, we can't ask an individual what they're earning. We can only tell them what the job is paying, which I think is interesting. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm a big advocate for banning that question. And You know, there are a number of organizations in the UK that have signed up voluntarily to a a scheme, a government scheme. I wouldn't be surprised if in the future this becomes a legal requirement. I mean, it's it's a bit like, you know, if you go into a shop and you want to buy something, uh, let's say a bottle of milk, and the shopkeeper says, what did you pay last time you bought this? Because that has absolutely no uh, influence on what they should be charging. And in the same way, if 
you are applying for a job, there are two steps. One, step one is you evaluate the job yeah. and you say, what is the salary range for this job? Let's say it's 30 to 40,000. And then step two is you look at the individual, the skills and the contribution that they would bring to establish whether they should be sitting at the middle uh, of the band, the lower end or the higher end of the band. Because when we ask people what their current salary is, let's say they've been discriminated in their current job for pay. All we're doing is we're transferring that inequity from one organization to the next organization because they're going to consider the current salary and not give them the uplift that they deserve. The the counter argument, I guess, um, I think it's good to look at it from both sides of, of, of not being able to ask that question is from a recruitment perspective, it could encourage a much higher number of people, let's say, trying their luck, don't have the right skills at all, but they think, well, they're not going to know what I'm earning now. They don't necessarily have to be, can't see that data. So I'm going to, I'm going to jazz up my CV a little bit and make an application and just sort of try my luck with this. Now, for me, I think this is a, a I'm I'm all for it. I should mention that. I think it's, if anything, it highlights the reasons why you should use an agency or a specialist to support with your recruitment needs. But um, that aside, for talent teams that are taking direct applications, when you can't ask that question, it could result in a much higher influx of applicants. And there could be positives and negatives associated with that. What's your experience been from your side of the table where people don't ask? Has that impacted the volume of applications or even the level of applications that come through. Have you ever asked yourself, how can any recruiter understand my HR recruitment challenges? Please don't give up on your hiring challenges just yet. Here at JGA HR Recruitment, we appreciate the difficulties associated with attracting, recruiting and retaining top human resources talent. We also understand just how costly a poor hire can be. JGA HR Recruitment would like to partner with you to help you overcome your hiring challenges. Contact us today on 01727 800 377 or visit jgarecruitment.com to find out more. There's a lot of evidence and research that shows that the number of applications you get for a job increase significantly as soon as you publish the salary range. Sure, I'd agree with that. So that's the first thing I would say is is we need to publish. And that's already going to get you a lot of applications. Now, when we publish the salary range, we already filter out some people who will, for example, not be willing to accept that salary range for the job. So we should know if we publish the salary range that we're within the range that somebody is willing to accept for this particular job. Now, you're right, through the recruitment process, we need specialist recruitment to be able to ask the right questions to make sure that people are um, have the skills to be able to to do that job. And through that recruitment process, assess, because this is one of the things that, for example, we would do with the organization is we would build a set of definitions to say, in your organization, this is what we expect at the lower end of the band, the middle of the band, and the higher end of the band. So you can, in some ways, look at the candidates and say, based on our definitions, we feel this person will be contributing at the middle of the band. And so that's the range that we should offer. And you're right, there might be cases where they're on a higher salary and actually they are looking at the higher end. And if you offer at the middle end of the band, you might not be able to recruit that person. But I think that's where we need to really think about our principles and our pay philosophy to say, do we want to make these adjustments which introduces pay inequity into our organization or say we're going to stick to our principles of 
pay equity. We're going to offer what we feel is right, even if it means occasionally losing out on certain candidates. So sure. I think I think I was thinking of it more the other way around, actually, not necessarily people on higher salaries applying, but more for people who, you know, they're on, in your example, 20,000 now and instantly think that's their quickest route to getting 40,000. As you say, I, I'm all for this coming in because I think it really drives in on the importance of a robust recruitment process and asking the right questions, assessing skills and capabilities in the right way. So actually, it wouldn't matter if that happened, but it would potentially encourage a much higher volume of unsuitable potential applicants who potentially are trying their luck for want of a better word. I don't know if you've seen that in the results from your side. I haven't seen data around it, but I, I think, it, like like you said, it really comes down to the recruitment process yeah. is identifying those people. Because, you know, there's also, I'm sure you've you've seen the research where you get men applying for a job if they feel like they meet 50% of the criteria and women would look at 80 to 90% 80, of the yeah, criteria. Yeah. So there are biases like that that apply when people are applying for jobs. So I think they will exist regardless. And we just have to make sure that we pick out the people who have the right skills and and include a more robust recruitment process. I think interesting on the salary banding thing, um, again, we, we publish all of our salaries, but I, we often get clients to say the salary banding is X, but please don't disclose this to the candidates. And the reason they often say that, I believe, is because there's a fear that if we disclose what the salary bandings are, they think that every, every candidate's always going to want the highest level of that salary, right? But actually, the reality, that isn't the case. Uh, but have you found something similar? What, what do you think is the the reticency for companies in not not publishing salaries? Have you, have you seen that their, their justification for it? I think there are a couple of reasons. One is nervousness around internal people and seeing the salary range and seeing that, oh, actually, I'm not in that range or I'm at the lower end of the range, even though I've been here for five years and I feel like I might be contributing a lot. So that's one fair. I think the other side is you do have internal managers that are just trying to make the most of their budgets that they have available to them. And so that's where the question from an internal manager will come up to say, find out what they're currently earning. So they can, I think, sometimes get away with offering the least possible salary that they can offer to that candidate. And in the absence of a pay range, I think that's where some of that minimizing the budget is used. But I think more often it's the nervousness around internal people seeing the pay range and and not liking it. Keeping a focus on recruitment just for a moment, then just taking this to a level further. We've, we've advertised the job. We've, we've, we've advertised our salary bandings. We've had a people apply. We're now in an interview process. We still often find hiring managers, even at first stage interview, asking candidates you know, what they're currently earning and asking for current salary information, which is something we would recommend they didn't do. But I'd love to find out from your perspective, if you're in agreement with that, that it's something that shouldn't be asked at interview and, and, and your reasons for, for why if indeed you do agree, why well, I don't think that would necessarily be a, the right thing to do. The question shouldn't be asked. I think we need some training for line managers when we talk about DEI and, and why this is, you know, often disadvantaging women, minority groups, those with disabilities that might have been discriminated against in the previous roles. And so we're just transferring this. I think we also need to give candidates more uh, guidance around how to respond to some of these questions. So. You know, a lot of candidates will think that if, if I don't answer this question, then this is going to harm my chances of getting the job. I don't know if you've seen evidence of this, but I'm sure like, in the past I would hear about some people that would lie about their current salary as well or add on 
what they think the bonus could have yeah. been or what the pension could be and all those things. So, you know, in, in if you look at that, people who are being honest might be losing out to people who are giving out a higher current salary. So it's about training and guidance for line managers, but also giving some guidance to candidates to say, this is how you can respond to it. So for example, saying I'm underpaid in my current role and I don't want that to influence my future salary in any way. So I would prefer not to answer that question. So I think we need to give those sort of guidance. So, I mean, you mentioned in your introduction, taking it right back to the start of this, that um, some terms are perhaps outdated. One of those was performance management. So I'm interested to know that from your perspective, how does the area of performance management even link to to pay and performance? A lot of organisations want to pay for performance. I don't think it's as high a percentage as it used to be maybe 20 years ago. But still, if you speak to a lot of organisations, they don't want to give everyone the same amount. They want to differentiate for performance. If we look at the research around pay for performance, this is a lot of academic research has been done on this. It shows the perception of fairness is more important than what we pay people. So whether you give somebody a 2% increase or a 10% increase, if they feel that somebody else is getting more and it's unfair, then the amount that we give them is irrelevant. So if the perception of fairness and the process of fairness is more important than what we pay people, then the first thing that we need to get right is the pay for performance process. And if you speak to a lot of HR professionals, you speak to a lot of leaders, they consistently, and in in some of the big consultancies, it comes up as like 80%, they feel that their performance management process isn't working. So why would we link something that we think isn't working to pay when we know that research tells us that the fairness and perception of fairness is so important? So I think that's the first issue that we have is we have to get the performance management process right. And if the performance management process isn't right and not trusted by employees, then let's not link the two together. For employers, though, that perhaps they have a wish to improve employee satisfaction, perhaps they wish to improve performance. But unfortunately, for whatever reason, they're unable to be in a position where they can improve employee salaries right now. What would you say to them? I know you talked about 2% and 10% increases. Let's say they have no, no budget at all to increase it by you know, 0%. Pay transparency is still important though, right? So what would be your advice for those clients? So there was a survey in the US, I think it was done by Payscale, where they looked at employee satisfaction rates. It was something like 42%. So this is in organizations where they were paying below the market to their employees. But then after this was communicated and the organization sat down with their employees and explained why this was the case, the satisfaction rates doubled to 80%. So there was no change made to their salaries, simply communicating to them, treating people like adults to say, this is the reason why we're paying below the market, satisfaction rates shot up. And so I think it's, you know, if we have no budgets, we can focus on communication and just being honest with people. So, I mean, I can use a personal example, like a three-hour strategy. I didn't have any investment or a business partner. So a couple of years ago, you know, we could only pay, afford to pay at the lower quartile. We communicated that clearly to people saying, look, this is a pay. Some people might have to take a pay cut if you come here, but we can only afford to pay at the lower quartile. And then in the future, we're going to look to increase it. And, you know, in that time, thankfully, nobody left. And so to me, that is real evidence that, you know, most people just want to be treated like adults, be told the truth and given the context 
And again, you know, I didn't share any numbers or specific numbers. It's all about sharing the context and explaining why we're acting in the way that we are. Yeah, it's a really, really good example. And actually it links right back to when we you know, started this conversation at the beginning of this episode of the show, which was really talking about building workplace culture of trust. And obviously that starts with the context of communication. Um, and interestingly, you know, as we know in the world of recruitment, um, perhaps more now than ever, people aren't moving just for salary anymore. They're moving for flexibility. They're moving for work-life balance. They're moving for a voice uh, to have more, more opportunity to impact strategy or, or you know values and, and many many other things besides salary and i think now is a a really good time to bring pay transparency into the spotlight because it's no longer the sole reason that people do change positions people now understand there's an importance of mental health and work-life balance and all the things that go with it so i guess my last question before we enter the vaults uh, would be this for me is what would you say now to the people that have listened to the show so far uh, they're keen to introduce to new pay transparency guidelines, they want to build a workplace culture of trust. What's the first thing they can kind of leave this episode with and, and immediately implement that perhaps they can they can put them on the right road to success? You know, obviously we're talking about pay here. Pay on its own isn't going to solve all our problems. We need all of these things to link in together. So we need to have, think about the clear sense of purpose. Yeah. Because like you said, people are moving for different reasons in organizations. And if you want to create that culture of trust, it's recognizing what people are looking for, different people want different things. So we, for example, do a lot of research, did a lot of research around generational preferences. And when it comes to transparency, actually, you see that Generation Z employees in particular are more transparent than any previous generation. Sure. You see things like people sharing salaries on TikTok and, you know, on social media. So we can't pretend that some people are not talking about salaries or having these conversations we can either or, or we can either pretend that they're not having these conversations or we can you know share the context and try and shape some of these conversations by being honest rather than letting people gossip or guess what's happening with the organization so i would say don't wait for a legal legislation to say you have to publish a pay range don't wait for legislation around don't ask questions about current salary or legislation around publish your gender pay gap or explain why that we have to be proactive in making sure that we're doing some of these things in our organizations because the employee demographics is changing generation y and z employees make up 50 percent of the workforce now and this generation and these generations are looking for more transparency they're looking for a sense of purpose they're looking for a sense of belonging and i think by treating employees like adults by being fair and transparent with them, we can create the culture where people will be willing to go and work without everyone having to pay at the upper quartile. And it's a lot more than just pay, but we don't necessarily motivate people through pay, sure. but we can definitely demotivate people through pay. But if people realize that they're not being paid the right salary or being treated unfairly. You rounded that off really, really well, much better than I could have. I mean, so thank you for that. It's a really good summary. I think brings the, uh, uh, the, all the questions into in, in, into view in a very, very articulate way. So uh, we're just going to open the HR L&D vaults. We've got three short, sharp questions for you now. Opening the L&D vault. If you could give one piece of advice to the world, what would it be? Treating employees like adults is a very simple way of saying it. It's thinking about, you know, how would I want to be treated? Just as an example, we sometimes speak to organisations where they say to me, oh, bonuses don't work, incentives don't work because they drive the wrong behaviors. And 
you're having this conversation. We don't want bonuses in our organization, but actually you see that the leadership team, all of them are on a bonus. So treat people like adults, be consistent. If you think that something's not going to work, don't do it yourself. If you think something is going to work, make sure it applies to everyone. So Great. No, that's a great answer. Uh, if you had the opportunity, what advice would you give a younger you just starting out in this new world of work? <laughs> a lot of learning takes place through trying new things. And often when we work in a corporate environment, in a corporate environment, we are very much stuck to our day-to-day tasks. If I was in that situation now, I would try to do a lot more things, try different things. And I think that's where we can learn and innovate and implement new ideas. I know it's not always easy in a corporate environment, but that's what I would encourage people to do is to allow people to make mistakes in the workplace so that they're able to make much better and bigger contributions for us by instead of just sticking to the average task. Yeah, couldn't agree more. We we grow we grow and learn from our failures, right? So you've got to fail first in order to know how to grow and improve. Uh, last question here: What is the uh, guiding principle or behaviour you've seen in every great leader that you've worked with? I think it comes to this idea of servant leadership. You know, this is actually again going back to Simon Sinek. He wrote the book "Leaders Eat Last," where said, you know, when when in the Marines they all gathered to eat the leader was sort of walking around and making sure that everyone else was seated and they were sitting down with their food. And once they saw that everyone else was sitting down, that's when they went to get their food. And And I think that's really is, is the leader's job is to make sure that everyone in their team has the tools and has the environment and you create the relationships where people, you know, it goes back to performance management. The reason I don't like that term is you can't just say to somebody perform, but what you can do is you can create the conditions, the relationships and the environment to allow people to to perform well or to sure. excel. And that's that's really a leader's job. Well, it's a great response. I'm a big fan of Simon Sinek myself. So uh, it doesn't take long for me to agree with you when you bring up his uh, his work. I think he's incredible in the way that he he writes down his all and talks about his ideas. So yeah, a great way to, to round off the show. And um, of course, if anyone wants to find out more about 3R Strategy, uh, we'll put a link in the show notes, but you can go to 3r-strategy.com. Uh, worth having a look as well. Some really good blog uh, articles, some great resources you can download. So do check that out. It's a really, really um, great website where you can, I'm sure you're going to find value, whether you are looking to introduce pay transparency or, or not, full of a wealth of resources for people working in the world of HR uh, or indeed rewards. So do check that out. Of course, if you want to get an uh, access to uh, Ramiz's book, A Case of the Mondays, all about uh, pay transparency and providing you with a roadmap to success. And you can get a, a link to that as well. Also in the show notes, it's available on Amazon now. Uh, it's been in the bestseller list, so do check that out. It's getting some great reviews. And of course, I'll put in uh, Ramiz's LinkedIn profile as well for those of you that want to connect with Ramiz to find out more or just to talk about the world of pay transparency, reward, or anything else that may take your fancy. Is there anything else, uh, any other links there, Ramiz, you'd like to direct traffic to, or those are the main three for now? I, I think that's it. They're, they're, we have a pay transparency page on the website. So if people are looking for different resources, white papers and so on, then there's free resources that people can download there as well. Super, fantastic. I have to say, it's a really good site for resources. One of, one of the best ones I've seen. So uh, do check that out. And of course, if you're an HR or L&D or indeed a reward professional listening to this show and you have an HR payroll reward or HRIS related vacancy that we can support, please do get in touch with either myself or any of my wonderful team at JGA Recruitment. And you can find us also in the show notes with a direct link to www.jgarecruitment.com. We've been operating in this space now for over 20 years and hopefully we can 
and show you what a great HR experience can feel like. So do reach out to either myself directly or any of my team. Just leaves me to say a huge thank you to Amis Halim for joining me today on the HR LD podcast. Thank you to you for listening. Please remember to share the episode with all of your HR colleagues. Review it if you can. And I look forward to meeting you the next episode real soon. Thank you. Thank you so much for tuning into the HR LD podcast with your host, Nick Day, CEO of JGA Recruitment Specialist HR Recruiters. If you need any help with the current HR or L&D vacancy, then please get in touch with Nick and his team. All contact details can be found in the episode notes. In the meantime, to make sure you never miss a future episode, please subscribe to the show through any of your favorite podcast channels. Till next time.